What's up, my friend? Fellow human being on the journey. It's quite a journey, isn't it? You know, I was so excited to be able to interview this week's guest because I was made aware of his work on a much greater scale because of this conversation and because uh, a good friend of mine recommended that I chat with him. He is incredible. I mean, I just loved this conversation so much. And, you know, in the context of human relationships, community, giving, everything, like candor, authenticity, just like making it so that serving the world is more important than our bullshit. I mean, I don't know that there's anything more important, that we are always more committed to what matters to us over everything. And, and I think that's a really challenging equation or mathematical, you know, uh, calculation to make in our heads most of the time, because being ourselves is not often celebrated. And the cost of not being ourselves is immense. And just the amount of pain that we experience in relationship often causes us to build survival strategies or coping strategies that don't allow us to experience relationship in an authentic and free space. We're constantly on guard, vigilant, you know, which makes so much sense because if love, quote unquote, hurt us, which is really just hurt, hurt us, someone, you know, as they say, hurt people, hurt people and healed people, heal people. And I think we're always this healing in motion that we're always expanding or, or unlayering another part of our psyche, another part of ourselves. We're growing constantly. There's always going to be opportunity for growth, opportunity for improvement, to be a better human. And that's because we're always going to learn more about ourselves. And even once we get to the place where we feel as though we've healed a lot of our inherited stuff, the stuff that we got from our family, from our inherited family, from our society, from our culture, we just realize there's just deeper and deeper layers that we just go more macro, more macro, more macro. And we really just start to have such a resonance with our own soul. And I hope that makes sense. And that as you clear more shit out, you just see that collectively there's so much suffering. And you start to see that your own suffering, which felt sort of isolationist or I'm the only one. And I, that's what's fascinating about pain is it often has a narcissistic lens, like no one would understand my pain. And I don't mean that as a bad thing. I mean that that's how we sort of separate ourselves from other. And this is the beauty of the work of beginning to create. Once you begin the healing work within yourself, you welcome back parts of yourself that you've exiled. You create community within yourself with all the younger versions of you that you told to go, that you were embarrassed about or ashamed of, that you wanted to hide in a box. So you tell them to come back forth. And when you experience that integration within yourself, you experience what it's like to have unconditional love for you. And what you sought in community, you created in yourself. And you begin to create community from that space where someone makes a mistake and you say, hey, tell me about it. Tell me about your mistake. And it doesn't mean you don't have consequences for people or that it means unconditional tolerance. You know, I repeat that all the time, that having compassion for something doesn't mean you tolerate anything. And boundaries always come from a place of love. They're telling other people, 
this is how we can produce a productive relationship together. And if you're not willing to do that, I'm committed to it. If you're committed to it, great. If you're not willing to, I'm still committed to my standards. I'm still committed to what I want to create in this life. I'm still committed to the relationships, the only types of relationships I'm willing to give birth to. And those are ones with respect for one another and kindness. And I was absolutely blown away by this conversation this week with this incredible human being who has really made his life all about service and just impact. And I was moved by the conversation. And you know what? I'm not going to hold it back anymore. Here, here it is. And before we listen to this, please, wherever you listen to this podcast, give it a five-star review and a written review and subscribe. That is so helpful for me. And it allows it to get into more people's ears. If you love an episode, please share it. Please tag me just so I can see it. And just so much appreciation for you and the support that you give the podcast. I want to give a special thanks to Jedi Spades for your review. The subject of the review is What the World Needs Now. And it says, Hey Mark, I'm inspired to thank you for the conversations you share. I appreciate the value that you and all your guests bring to my journey to becoming the best version of me. I hope these messages reach as many people as possible so that we can all reach new, better, and higher vibrations. Be curious. I love it. Thank you, Jedi Spades, for that review. It meant so much to me. And the way we can get these messages to reach as many people as possible so that we can all reach new, better, and higher vibrations is by sharing episodes, giving it a five-star review, and a written review, and subscribing. So thank you so much for your support with that. All right, hot off the press, I got to tell you, Organifi has a new blend, and it is chocolatey delicious. It's called Harmony, and it is made for healthy hormones. It's designed for women. So it combines superfoods and adaptogens that have been used for centuries to support inner balance and bliss. With the ladies in mind, this blend is designed so you can feel your best and experience daily harmony. It's plant-based, it's gluten-free, it's vegan, it's dairy-free, it's soy-free, Got cacao, maca, shatavari, stinging nettle, ginger, turmeric, coconut milk, chaste tree. I mean, it sounds delicious. It is delicious. I've tasted it. It's chocolatey delicious, so you can't go wrong. And it's designed for healthy hormones to use during your menstrual cycle. So there you go. Go to Organifi.com slash create the love to save 20% and get free shipping, and that is special to create the lovers on top of the 20%. So go to Organifi.com slash create the love. So without further ado, here is the incredible, the kind, the brilliant, the empathic, the social entrepreneur. The He's just doing incredible work. It's, his name is Mark Brand, and you know, he's one of North America's foremost social entrepreneurs. He has 11 businesses under his belt, and he's just such an incredible person. And I loved him. So this interview is such a treat. I hope that you enjoy and let's do it. I'm super excited to have Mark Brand on today, not just because we share the first name and also that is named after an apostle, but also because of the beautiful work that you do in the world. And I want people to hear more about that. So tell us a little bit more about like, I mean, clearly you've you're motivated every morning to get up and do something that you really care about and welcome people into the world of, of what that is. Yeah. And I think to, to start off, firstly, thank you for having me. I appreciate anybody who's willing to um, share time and space, especially with an audience that's already open 
to um, being better versions of themselves and how they can be in service to society. So thanks. Thank you for the time. And then secondly, I think it's important to acknowledge where I am. And so I'm on the unceded territories of the Snohomish, Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and Squamish nations, right, right at this moment, which is also known as Vancouver, British Columbia. And specifically, I am on the skirts of the downtown east side mm-hmm. and Gastown. And I've operated in these two neighborhoods for 16 years this year uh, as a wow. restaurateur, as an entrepreneur. Uh, and then in about t- 2011, pivoted to be a social impact entrepreneur. Uh, which I didn't know what meant at the time. People just started saying it. And I was like, I don't know what that means, but I'm going to go with it. <laughs> Sounds and, so cool. <laughs> doesn't it? But what it really means, and I, I, of course, you create your own definition for what that is. Like you create your own definition of how Mark Grove shows up as an entrepreneur. I create my own definition of how I show up with my teams as a social impact entrepreneur. And what it means to us is everything that we do on a day-to-day basis has to have a net positive effect on society at large particularly those who are marginalized. So our user that we design around every single day are the 80% of the population that are one paycheck from destitute. Um, poverty is my focus. People say, oh, it's the homeless guy, the guy that works on homelessness, you know, that you know, struggle with addiction. All those things true. But what I really care about is why poverty is the way it is, because it ends up costing us societally, not just emotionally, but actually financially, way more than it has to to not address these issues than it would to address them. So I operate brick and mortar businesses on a more granular level. Uh, one being uh, the building in the historic Save on Meats space that's operated by my charity, A Better Life Foundation. We do about 1,200 meals a day. And in non-COVID times, we create convenings and experiences for people to directly interact with individuals experiencing poverty, homelessness, racism, all the systemic oppression so that they can't just point fingers, but they're like, oh, this is Tony. Tony suffers from dual diagnosis and unfortunately had his elderly parents pass and is now unhoused as a result of that. It humanizes the issues that we face so people can become advocates. So I do lots of work outside of that, but on a day-to-day basis right here, I focus on what we work on every day. And then on a global level, I work as the chair of the United Nations Catalyst Thread on poverty, food insecurity, and what we can do with waste or leftover food. Seems to be like, first off, that's a whole lot of jobs. Uh, <laughs> so way to keep that all floating in together. Uh, I think for people listening, give them some context of how one who's not familiar with the downtown east side, or even is, but is more afraid of it, how they might see it. Yeah, I think the easiest way to describe it is we've all traveled through a city center where there are blocks that have been left behind, Mm -hmm. right? And those blocks, unfortunately, will have street entrenched folks, people who are homeless, who are living in tents, who are living on cardboard. The downtown east side is the densest area of that, of mental illness, open air drug market. So people visibly buying, selling, injecting, smoking drugs um, that exists. And I've done research all around the world. So uh, if you imagine if you've been in San Francisco or this is somebody from the United States, the Mission Tenderloin, imagine if you squeezed in a trash compactor, the Mission Tenderloin into five blocks or Skid Row in Los Angeles, Mm -hmm. same thing. Or parts of New Jersey, the Bronx, same thing. I mean, I've traveled across the entire center of the US as well, everywhere this exists, right? But the downtown east side is an anomaly for the way that it is, I guess, engaged with. 
Whereas Vancouverites, people who live in the city, drive around it like it doesn't yeah. exist. That's very much true. I've certainly, like when I first moved to Vancouver, having come from Calgary, uh, Calgary's homeless are not as visible because the winter is obviously very dangerous. So they, most homeless people from Canada move to Victoria and Vancouver if they can. Sure. You know, and the it's not as explicit in Calgary. You know, it obviously still exists, but it's not as explicit. And when I first went through the downtown east side, I was there for work, actually, uh, in my former life, in my former job. And I was at a restaurant in Gastown and was walking back to my hotel. And I was like, wait, I just walked half a block. And all of a sudden, I felt like I was in a different world. And someone offered me drugs, I remember. Right. And I remember at that point being more afraid of it because I was so unfamiliar with it. And my friend who I was with was from Vancouver and he works in, it does um, volunteer work in that area. And he's like, we're totally safe. Absolutely. Like, let's keep going. And, and I remember as we were doing that, just how all the sort of media and all the things I've been taught or what you may see on movies was all the prejudices, the judgments, all the thoughts of like that were feeding my fear we're not even allowing me to be necessarily as present, uh, you know, of course, because you're kind of in that vigilance. And then I moved to Vancouver about two years after that. I did this volunteer project um, called the Cardboard Project. And it was so beautiful. And it was like on pieces of cardboard, people wrote moments that were the moment that sort of negatively impacted how they ended up where they are. Mm -hmm. And the things I read on those pieces of cardboard, humanize them in ways that I could never really, I can't really put into words. And that, just uh, the journey of moving to Vancouver and, and having spent more time in there and volunteering and all that stuff, you start to see the stories behind people. And then, because I think what's so convenient as a, as a, a human who has privileges, we often look through a, a window of like, I don't understand this, so I'm just not going to look towards it. Or I don't like the way it looks. I don't like the way it makes me feel. Mm -hmm, there it is. Yeah. And it's like, I'm so uncomfortable with that feeling that I have and they don't. And it must be because they chose to do heroin or they, you know, that projection of free will that we love to do. Yeah. That's a huge point right there, right? And so what is the discomfort? What does it look like in action? crossing the street, faking a phone call, pretending you didn't hear somebody. So you can imagine as that individual who's there having to ask strangers for assistance hundreds of times a day, where 90% of them completely ignore that you exist. Mm -hmm. Imagine, imagine what that's, you know, you're, you're invisible in real, you're right here. And that's why we call folks invisible people or the invisible population, even though we can see them, it's a bit of a play on words. And the way yeah. that it makes us feel has been taught to us because yeah. we're also taught that it's a societal failure that ultimately falls on the shoulders of a government. Or like the government yeah. is responsible for this. I pay my taxes. Therefore, they this should take be care of this. And they are completely unqualified. This, which is often, yeah. Yeah, well, I would imagine because, you know, I remember in the hearing a story and, and correct me if this is wrong because from the time that you've been in the downtown east side, I remember hearing about during the Olympics that they just took people from the downtown east side and like, I don't know, did they transfer them to like Langley or Calgary or bust them up? Wow. And then like repaired the storefronts, but didn't necessarily put stores in them. Is that right? 
Um, the secondary part I'm unaware of, the first part of busting them out is absolutely true. It was a, we can't possibly show the world this, which is the opposite of what we should have done. Right. Like, like that this exists. Like, you know, it's, it feels to me like it's so resonant of what's currently going on in the world. You know, that I've just recently started the book. I don't know if you've heard of it. Uh, Oneness versus the 1%. I've not. By um, uh, her last name is Shiva. I can't remember her first name right now. Ananda. I can't remember. But I saw her, her being referenced by Russell Brand. And she talks about this like top 1% wanting to get into farming and ag. But really, it's all about continuing to perpetuate poverty. It's about making more money and creating more separation. Totally. You know, that's so often the case, right? When we look at social venture capitalists or social venture funds, um, they, they, you can just watch the threads. They fund things they know will continue to make money and happen to do good. Exactly. Like Russell Brand was just saying in a video I watched to his about uh, like the World Economic Forum in Davos. And he was saying, it just happens to be that their philanthropic (laughs) adventures make them more money. And and he referenced how Zuckerberg and Gates have both said they're going to give away half their fortune. Like Gates said that years ago, I think 12 or 13 years ago. Since then, his fortunes have doubled. Right. Uh, Zuckerberg wrote a letter to his son. Him, and that was so nice that they wrote it to their baby, that they were going to give away all of their wealth. But they just started another LLC that directs where the money goes. It's like all smoke and mirrors. It's such bullshit. Um, Super unfortunate. And, and the other part really about it is. being, well, I share this stuff from stages all the time, especially in the U.S., because to get everybody housed in the United States that is currently unhoused with the best data that we have, imagine the data is very flawed, right? But let's let's yeah. take it that it's 75% correct, right? Let's yeah. say that that's it. It would cost the annual budget that Americans spend on Christmas trees to house and give people homes the entire homeless population of the United States. The tax breaks, half of the tax breaks for fossil fuels, half of the tax breaks for fossil fuels annually would house every single unhoused person in the United States. Zuckerberg snaps his fingers. He wouldn't even notice. The interest would compound within two months. He wouldn't even notice. Bezos could do this oh. stuff with what's in his like pocket lint. <laughs> right. So understanding huh. they are choosing. You are making an active choice. Poverty is an act of violence that we as a society partake in. We, we've chosen that because we don't need to do it. We absolutely don't. We could say, hey, wait a second. My tax dollars, it costs three times more to keep somebody homeless than it does to house them. That's a real number. Well, I can't possibly elect somebody who doesn't then address this head on. Let's get everybody housed. I was on the phone with an indigenous organization we're working with called Luma, and they're doing 60 shelter beds and 80 full-time housing units. And when you think about those numbers, you're like... It's just a scratch. Like it's a good idea. But if one of these philanthropists came along and said, you know what? No, this parking lot that we're developing to make an extra, you know, $22,000 a year, let's turn this into 25 stories with social development, get people wraparound services, get them housing. Let's just do this because humanity, the other goals that we're working towards, all the SDGs from the United Nations, six feet of sea rise, that's real. It would be awesome if we had all of our brains working on it versus a small few. Everybody else is so struggling, they can't use their weapons of good to help us figure these things out because they, they just don't have 
the time in the day with three jobs or trying to scrape together enough to get a meal. We could use all of humanity for this is the other angle that is really important to me. When you see data like the one you just said, that it costs more to keep someone homeless than it does to house them, um, where is the disconnect between that data, which you would think any politician would go, okay, well, I've got a budget and I want to make, because they're always about their budgets and I get that because that's what gets them reelected and blah, blah, blah. But like, think of all the real estate tax British Columbia has made in the last 10, eight years. In the last eight years, it's been preposterously high, obnoxiously high. And look at how much money ICBC charges. You know, that's a whole other subject. But curious as to like, where is it then from like the data you're sharing to the okay? Is it because real estate's so expensive? Is it like, where does the disconnect happen? It requires unification is ultimately, I mean, the answer to so many things, right? So the municipal politician will blame the province. The province will blame the feds. The feds will say, well, where's the plan, right? And then it just, the cycle starts again. It's like, well, no one says I'll do, I got it. This is, well, I mean, they do say it, right? We had, we had a former mayor that said it twice and kept getting elected because we were like, okay, this time, eight full years and it got worse. So they say it and then they say, oh, you know, I tried, but the day to day of politics just, it overwhelmed me. Or, I mean, our, our mayor right now, I, he's MIA through this whole pandemic. I understand the job is super challenging. I wouldn't wish municipal politics on my worst enemies. I don't have any, but I wouldn't wish that on anybody because I've sat in council meetings. I know what it looks like, but it's not an excuse. If you really deeply care about something, you have the ear of John Horgan. You guys have the ear of Justin Trudeau. Get in a room. Be like, I, I will work with your calendar. Get this three months, whatever works for you, dog. Just let me know and show up and say, hey, you can be the hero. I don't need to be the hero. You can be the hero. Let's do this thing together and let's just eradicate this. Alberta, where you're coming from, are killing it. They're like, we're just going to eradicate this. And they're working with private, public, everybody together to build more housing, to get people safe, to do the thing. And mark my words, I think in the next five years, you'll see Alberta get down to a very close to zero rate around homelessness. And then it becomes a competition, which we all understand, and we'll start to work towards it. And I don't really care how we get there, but it's unfortunate that you know very well, and I've heard you speak on it, we're driven by these things, by competition, by the big C capitalism, right? Even in our interpersonal relationships, we're competitive. And so Vancouver will be like, wait a second, Alberta solved this? And Montreal will be like, not so fast. (laughs) And and then maybe we solve it. I don't know. But um, truly, it's it's about people not... (sighs) not willing to get out of their own way or their own ego or their own reelection scheme or their own interpersonal politics to actually work for the people that they have sworn to serve. Yeah. It strikes me as like, no matter where you sort of look at this problem or these challenges uh, collectively around the globe, it's that often, maybe always um, capitalistic profit driven endeavors uh, continue to trump or and drive the intentions of why people are doing what they're doing. And so if it doesn't make money, you know, then, you know, you sort of think of like companies that exploit mother nature. Well, if you exploit mother nature, you're willing to exploit people like that. You can't, it's not either or Correct. it's both. And cause you have to, you have to remove your empathy. You have to remove the ability to empathize just to 
do that, just to pillage the earth. And so when you turn down empathy in one area, it's not turning back up in the way you treat the you know, the human that you pass. In that exact, exact analogy, our meal program that we do every day, like we consider the source, we consider the recipient, we consider who's executing it, how, what's their emotional state. So our kitchen is wow. led by an indigenous, indigenous woman by the name of Vanessa Watersworth. She's been with us for years. She's worked her way up the ranks to be our executive chef. She put forth four or five menu items for this daily meal program that are specifically Squamish Nation developed. It's like, this is, this is for people who I serve that I'm from for this thing. We have to also source responsibly. What does that look like? And it's a constant push-pull. And then how do we deliver the meals? Because if you do all that work and put it in a diesel truck, you're an yeah. asshole. Yeah. Right? So we, yeah, we do it in electric tricycles. So we've been working with this group called Shift for so cool. eight years. Wrap around. And during the pandemic, I get grounded. Generally, I'm on the road about 300 days a year. Wow. But I'm compromised, so I've been in my apartment, and I've been in Vancouver, which has been a huge gift outside of the rest of the challenges. And so I said, what are we doing about waste? I work on waste globally, but what are we doing about waste here? I know that we're really good about our recycling and composting. There's 19 different colored garbage cans. Like I get that. <laughs> but what are we aggressively doing community-driven to work on this problem? And so we started working with a couple of different organizations to get one of the fanciest grocery stores in Vancouver, Urban Fair to give us their leftovers. And I say leftovers specifically because language matters instead of waste. Nobody wants to eat waste, but everybody loves leftovers. So That's, that's right. true. That's a good point. <laughs> give me your leftovers. We'll send our trike for it with shift. You bring them down here. And I employed a chef who's out of work, like many are, uh, former CDC or chef de cuisine for an Italian restaurant here in Van. And he sorts and repurposes and recreates out of that food. And with him, the trike driver, one amazing sorter, and then the trust of our community, we've gotten 13 tons of the landfill since last June. Wow. So this, because you spoke previously when we first started the convo, you were talking about taking restaurant and grocery store leftovers. I like that language. And because I never would have called it waste, you know, and, and you watch these restaurants just dump, not because they want to, but because aren't they sort of regulated or there's like, there's liability or something for some places in the world for restaurants, what they throw out to give away? There's a, there was a insurance blockage, right? So who is then responsible for the food if somebody should die was the excuse that lots of people used. But ultimately, as soon as it comes into our possession, we're already insured for all of this stuff. Of course we are. Then it's ours. So we get stuff from hotels, like big name like, hotels. We'll take it. Of, yeah. of course. And, and it has to be the other part of this coin is, is the resource we're receiving equal to or more than the resource that we're outputting, right? So we think about this in social enterprise because people are like, oh, I've got nine pallets of bananas over here at Whole Foods. Can you come pick it up? Like, what does it take to do that? Six volunteers, two vans, a whole day of work, stepping away from other things, and the bananas are almost rotten? That's not useful because then it's just the waste is my problem. And it is waste at that point. Yeah. Right? So we found a lot of the sweet spots of, okay, you can't resell this because your very <laughs> privileged customers don't eat day-old sushi. But day-old sushi is actually good for three or four days. Let's get that reconstituted and put into something beautiful. So it's, there is, of course, nuance to every part of the conversation. But what I always say to restaurants, instead of trying to find somebody to give their waste to, is like, there's people who are struggling close to you. I promise you within five or six blocks, there's an organization, women and children fleeing violence, there's kids, 
that would love you to put a little bit more effort into that food and get it to them. So you have your own program. And if we all did that, we'd be in a very different place. Well, especially with, you know, some of the data I recently saw was that due to lockdowns and the pandemic, but more specifically how we've engaged with the pandemic, with lockdowns, it has and will drive over 120 million people. No, I think it was more than 120 million people into poverty, into starvation. Sure. Yeah. I mean, none of those stats are surprising whatsoever. I I think so the first time I ever got to address the United Nations was two years ago around poverty and food insecurity. And you'll laugh because I showed up like this. This is how I dress. I don't really have a blazer that I can pull out of the closet. When we don't do video on the podcast, oh, okay. people I'm in a t-shirt. Uh, Mark is dressed in a very cool green t-shirt, um, casually chic. I really appreciate it. I feel seen in this moment. <laughs> I'm going to take, take that praise and roll with it in the story. So I arrive and there's a U-shaped sitting as, of course, right? And I sit down in the seat and I was a late addition. I got added a couple of weeks before. So I didn't have an official placard. I had a folded piece of paper with my <laughs> name. Totally. I was like, this is so appropriate. Like you have no idea how appropriate this is. And I sit down and I get comfortable and I'm nervous. Of course I'm nervous. I'm, yeah. I still get nervous every time I take a stage. It's it's because I want to be in service to the people who need us. So I sit down and a gentleman immediately steps to me in this like $10,000 suit, beautiful double-breasted joint, immaculately like manicured. And he says, um, excuse me, media and bloggers are actually this way. And he points. Wow. And in that moment, all of my past trauma and bias just arcs. And I'm, I'm like... Bad you know what? No, just go sit there. This will be, this will be valuable for everybody. So I take my laptop and I move to the back and I sit and then they call my name as they're going around the table. And I'm like, Oh, I was actually told to sit back here. And the gentleman who it is just turns 18 shades of red. He's also addressing them to uh, uh, the UN that day. So I move back up to my seat and they say, uh, Mr. Brand, we'd like you to go first. And I was like, actually, I'm going to go last. And they're like, that's not, not really how this works. And I was like, you know, it's, it's important that I go last. And I just held my ground and they allowed me to do it. And so everybody, and this is my problem with bureaucracy, period, no matter what level it is, uh, they spent about a quarter of their time introducing themselves. We know who you are. <laughs> we, we've come to do this three-hour convening from all over the planet. And we're going to spend 20 to 30% of our time rehearing all the shit we already know. And so I'm getting angrier and angrier. But I'm furiously typing. And when it gets to me, bringing this back around, they're like, Mr. Brand, your time. And I was like, cool, I'm not going to introduce myself. I'm going to assume you know who I am. So since we've sat down, 14,182 people have died from starvation. Wow. And I just wanted to let that sit for a moment. I was like, this is deadly serious. And I know that everybody at this table cares. I know you care. You wouldn't be here. But I think we get caught in what this container is versus what we do. And it's so important just to remember at every second what we do. And so at the end of this conversation, I finished my talk. The gentleman who moved me, his name is Antonio Parenti. He's the Italian UN delegate and EU delegate comes and he's like, is it okay if I hug you? I said, absolutely. He had way too much cologne on, but he gave me this <laughs> massive hug and was like, I'm very sorry for judging you. And I was like, that's okay, because I'm assuming you're not going to do it again. Right. And we've become very close friends since. I'll be working with him in Italy in, in late June, early July again. 
my reaction, our reactions to these moments dictate. I could have proved to him what he assumed of me by allowing my trauma and bias to show up. Right. And instead, I just went and sat my ass down in the back. So, Well, I love how you sort of did the long. You're like, there's going to be a moment where I'm going to get to teach. Let me hold on to it. And I think that patience is is really indicative of, obviously, you mentioned like previous stuff you've been through. It's indicative of the work you've, you've done. It's, and I hear you talk about this often, right? Is we're never a finished product and we get to make all of these decisions every single day about how we're going to show up. What might be misconstrued in what I just said that I was like, oh, I'm going to get you. Opposite. Mm-hmm. The opposite. Yeah. I was like, I mean, they might not even know I'm here. And at the end of the day, what was supposed to happen here is exactly what's going to happen yeah. here. As long as I listen to it, my intuition can override my ego. Am mm. I going to allow it to? Yes. Yeah, I always am. I'm going to listen to that part that's right around my heart center. It's sort of around where my butterflies flutter in my stomach. I'm going to listen to those two things instead of my reptilian brain. that <laughs> just wants to start swinging on people all the time. <laughs> yeah. right? Imagine Mark Brand knocks out <laughs> Italian UN delegate. Uh, that just the impact though, of those words and and the, when you presented how many people had died from starvation in that time, I think, you know, for people listening, like, because they're all in different regions of the world, how do you even begin to like sort of turn towards or, or what can you do, I guess, uh, as a regular everyday person who isn't in starvation, um, what can you do uh, that's immediately available? What a beautiful prompt and thank you. So I think what I like to share with people the most is that we are now being directed and we have for the last five years in a popular way to find our purpose. Yeah. And I think it drives both of us insane. Right? Where I'm like, <laughs> find your stop making people feel like they're not enough. Mm. Like every single day, it's just relentless like, Here's another piece of knowledge in 30 seconds that I'm going to share with you that makes you feel like you shouldn't have got out of bed today or (laughs) that other people are judging you for the way that you show up in the world. And we have to push that stuff aside and identify with self, right? So we're, this is universally true. We're everything we need. We're everything we need. You have everything you need to also help others. All the tools are there. And often we're like, we don't have the resource. And we're looking at resources money which is also mm-hmm. false. It's, it's truly false. People who, and the earlier analogy, are walked by 95 plus percent of the time, your resource is your time. It's your intention. It's your love. It's your mm-hmm. ability to look somebody in the eyes and say, I see you. I don't actually have any money, but is there anything else that I could help with? Is, do you want an ear? Is there you know, something you want to talk about? And watch people. Right, so there, there is a resource there, and that's that's a micro action. But what I share with folks is there's the, the Venn diagram, the three circles that with you at the center. The first thing that you need to identify is what do you care about and why. The why being the most important part, right? I care about poverty. Why? Because I should. No, that's not the answer. Why? Well, because my parents come from it, and I saw what it did to them and to our interpersonal relationship. That's never quite been strong enough because. They are in scarcity mode all the time. They haven't lived in scarcity for 35 years, but the trauma that it's created for them and for the people that I serve is hard to move past. And that poverty defines them. So if we can change with your parents, yeah, my parents, my grandparents, the people I lived around, the people I now am in service to, 
often the people before I employ them that I employ, poverty hurts them so badly, emotionally, mentally, physically. It just, it, it takes this toll on people that's completely unnecessary and unjust. So I care about it because I know that I can create things that alleviate it, that allow us to show up for people, business models, um, charitable organizations, whatever that may look like. So my why was I care about poverty and this is why. And there's a much more detailed answer, of course, but how I got to it was, of course, self-work, but I write a lot. Mm-hmm. And putting things on paper and getting into that flow state of just like, oh, what's going to come out? You can define that as an individual listening to this pretty quickly. And the second question you need to ask yourself is, how much time do I have? Right? Mm-hmm. And we, we often look at ourselves and like, I am holding down two jobs, man. I'm just holding on. And so you can do something really simply, which is open up your phone and see where your screen time is. And this is not to shame anybody or make anybody feel guilty. Trust, I am the worst. I spend far too much time on social platforms because I feel lonely, right? And this isolation does it. But you can look at those and you're like, if I could shave 20% off all of these, how much time is that? It's three hours a week. All right. Wow. You just found yourself three hours. And with that three hours, your why is poverty. The next thing is what's a skill you have that you wish you could use more? For me, it was cooking, right? Nobody knew me as a chef. I've been cooking for 30 something years. I decided to start developing those skills again because I knew I could get people together. I could hold their attention as a speaker. I had enough of notoriety that I could bring the right people to the table. And if I cooked for them, that would be interesting to them. And it, be- that's cool. it became the thing. So, and food, of course, just brings people together. That's it. Yeah, sorry. Keep going. Not at all. So that's, those were my things. I said, I got three hours a month was my, <laughs> I was running 11 businesses <laughs> at the time. I have three hours. That's not enough. Right? You should start another one. So three hours a month, I care about poverty and I want to cook. And then I designed an event called the Greasy Spoon Diner. We did the first one. We did 54 sellouts directly after that. That's a great name. And it became this thing because I identified how I could best be of service personally without having a ton of resource. And so what I share with people is, you define an organization that's already doing that work. You don't want to be a burden to that organization. You find out what their needs are by doing your own research, by really spending the time. Don't just email or cold call them. Nobody's got time for that. And then figure out how you can show up. And the end of that sort of analysis for people is, I absolutely promise you, there's, there's no margin for error here, that when you show up for somebody else in a volunteer capacity, it will light you on fire. Amen. Yes. Every time. Each and every Yeah, that time. level of contribution just you well, you become proud of you become someone that you're proud of. I think it's and it's immediate. It's like, you know, I I think often we we think like, well, change will I have to see I don't know what it's gonna look like. So why bother engaging? Or uh, you you know, that idea of like fake it till you make it. And it's like actually the moment you make a different decision, the moment you do something different, you are already that thing. You are already that person. Totally. Who's defining your fake? Who, right. Who defi- yeah, who's right. defining who that? It's like, that? You're not, you're not really a chef. Oh, okay. Chef means chief of the kitchen. I run a bunch of kitchens by definition. <laughs> I definitely <laughs> am. And, and I'm the chief of this fucking kitchen. more importantly, why does that threaten you? Yes. That's a great question. I mean, do you, do you think it's because we're engaging a behavior that they haven't engaged in, like they sort of have shame for not having pursued a dream, volunteered, done the thing, paid attention, witnessed another. Without question, that's one part. And then the other part is the scarcity. 
if if I identify as something and somebody else who may get more shine than me identifies as something, then I must cut them down. And you know this from other parts oh. of the world, tall poppy syndrome, as it's known in Australia. Yeah. We we practice it in all of the colonized world. And to define tall poppy, it's like we're really excited about people who are helping out right until they grow just a little bit taller than us, and then we cut their heads off. Right. And we're like, no, 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 no. You you stay down here with us because that's comfortable for me. And then when we surpass that part, so there's this really bumpy turbulence moment, right? Like when you're climbing in the plane. So as you get to a little bit of notoriety, great. A little too much, nobody's on your side. Above that, everybody was always with you. <laughs> they, were, they were always <laughs> with you. I was always a fan. I always appreciated what that yeah. person did. And societally, that's what we do to people. So we also do it in the microcosms of our interpersonal relationships with people uh, in the industries that we work in in socials, right? Is we look for fault so that we don't have to feel guilty about inaction. That's so fascinating. Yeah, you think about like, I'll often get messages that are like, stay in your lane. <laughs> and I was like, I, it's my fucking car, my road, fuck off. You know, like, and I also am like, at what point did you have an image in your mind of what I was supposed to talk Ooh, about and be? Bars. You know, like, it's just like, I can't imagine like, I'm curious, like based on you said you've had businesses in those areas for the and you've lived in those areas for the last 18 years, 16, 17. Sure. I mean, I, I've lost count, but yeah, 2000, yeah, a lot, 2006 or seven. So what brought you because I have no idea what the downtown east side was like at that time. But what brought you into that area and then build businesses in that area, but then to do you know, the work that you do now, because you're clearly so passionate about it. And you're just the, the resonance of, of your words is, is from a space of care and, and truth. So I'm curious what cultivated that because it's also, uh, there's a fire in it too, which I really love. Yeah, man. I mean, I think a lot of your prompts so far this morning have, have sort of been on that border of like, and then what'd you do? You know what I mean? Like we, yeah, yeah. I know that our conversation in this moment could very much go to a place because we have similar experiences of people critiquing. So I'm just going to recognize that, notice it and put it aside because we'll do that another time for sure. And why <laughs> am I so passionate? I'm going to give you the medium length answer because I think it's really important for people. And mm -hmm. I arrived in Vancouver because I was forced to leave Australia. Those of you guys can't see me. I'm sitting in front of turntables in a mixer right now. And in my former life, the pinnacle or the apex of what I wanted to do in the service industry was be a DJ. I've always loved music. And I realized as a dishwasher, as a busboy working my way up to service, that the person who got paid the most and had the best job in the room every time was the DJ. I was like, this is the greatest job. Plus, you get to control the energy and allow people to have the greatest time. And you That's can so convene true. and you can do all these things. So I was doing that. I achieved my dreams all of my dreams around music. I got to tour with Public Enemy, Cypress Hill, Gangstar, all of my odds. Yeah, I got to open for all of wow. them. I was playing festivals. I had a beautiful four-bedroom house. I was married. I was just in this beautiful place. And it's 2003 or four. And I went to get my permanent residency because I was going to live the rest of my life in Australia. And I was like, this is my place. These are my people. I've worked to get to this. I'm so excited because hard work truly does pay off. And I went and got a scan, one of which I had last week. And the scan came up that I have polycystic kidney disease. Now, it's a hereditary disease that is a long-term illness that we don't have enough research on. 
that can expedite at any one moment and shut down your organs requiring dialysis, a transplant, um, or, you know, take you out. And so at that moment, I realized exactly what was going to happen, which is the Australian government said, we will give you residency if you sign off on all your medical costs for the rest of your life, which is millions of dollars. And as a Canadian, there's no choice there, right? So I had to leave. I, I was forced to the country. I lost all of the cash that I'd ever accumulated by having to sell the house, which everything was in. And I found myself at ground zero and unable to make myself uh, financially safe by DJing. There just wasn't a place for it here. But I knew in my heart and in my body and in my, that intuitive center that I had to be in Vancouver. I never lived here, but I knew I had to be here. And so I followed that and ended up pursuing things that didn't work out and ended up behind the bar at a restaurant here using culinary skills, my interpersonal skills to quickly create notoriety for myself there and became Vancouver's very first bartender of the year, uh, yeah. which was super fun, right? And so yeah. then I leveraged that into creating my first restaurant named Bonita, also here on my neck, named after my mom in Gastown, the downtown east side, before anybody was really around. Why that neighborhood? Because I just knew. I just knew in my bones. So fast forward 11 businesses, my grandfather and my grandmother pass. I go to Edmonton, where they're from, with my uncle, my dad, and my aunt. And we were digging through the basement of my grandparents' very modest home. They were farmers in Edmonton. They were very canning, you know, making jams, doing the whole thing that you know from Alberta was part of our being. Another reason I love culinary. We literally, like it's a movie, find a suitcase. We open the suitcase. My grandfather would never talk about his father to me. I was like, where do we come from? I want to know more. And because he, he was adopted, I knew his dad had been incarcerated. I didn't know what for. I knew they were estranged. I knew he had passed, but I didn't know any of the details because they didn't share them. There is a hundred letters and images in the suitcase. I take all of them. I'm like, wow. I'm going to scan all of these for the family, but I'm going to go through them. They are letters from my great grandfather to my grandfather. And I, wow. and I look at where they're written from. And I'm like, that says East Broadway. They were from Vancouver and they were from a mental institution here and they were from a uh, prison here. So my great-grandfather's office was five blocks from Save On Meats and he was the first abortion doctor in British Columbia performing abortions for women who had been raped or who had become pregnant against their will. He was then incarcerated, beaten, forced medications to try and crack him of this of this thing that he did, uh, which drove him insane, and he died. So he died here in BC, showing up for women who were fleeing violence. Fast forward 60, 70 years, unbeknownst to me, we feed women who are fleeing violence on these same blocks. Wow. I had no idea about any of this, but I knew. Chills? I knew all of that it. Is, we, wow. we know why. We can feel it in our bones. Right. And I just knew, you know, we're, we're on the verge of bankruptcy in 2013. I'm getting sued. Things are terrible. My name is Mud. And I'm like, this is what we do. We're going to just go through the storm. We're going to get through it. We're going to keep showing up for people that we're supposed to show up for because that's what I was put here to do. And that intuition and knowledge, inner knowing, I believe that we all have. And because of the pressures of the societal norms and just society in general, we become numb or we compartmentalize and we, we miss it. We miss what we're here to do. So that's, that's the medium length story. I hope that wasn't too long. 
Damn, that's not too long. I want more. That was wow. I got chills because that's such a just to think how everything has come around. You know that like just in your inherited genetic imprint of servitude that there's this call back to the place you didn't know that you were from, and that is really cool. And I I also love you know when you look back, you can obviously connect the dots. But to see how what happened in Australia brought you here and has now put you in service of so many, but also have you going around the world speaking about these things so that that passion that's born from what you've been through is really contagious. You know, it's like that. I, I remember listening to a talk from I think it was Alan Watts where he said that it doesn't matter what the words say of a book. It's the energy that it's written. in. Oof. Like you don't need to understand it. And I think that that's true, too, of just hearing someone like you who's very on on purpose, who's very intentional. And you spoke to how, you know, sort of we experience this disconnection from our intuition, really just to be in this world in so many ways. Like, I find we are socialized and and sort of unconsciously gaslit out of being within ourselves, Mm. you know, and I've realized just over more so in the last year and a half that if you're paying attention, there's no way you can't be suffering or have grief because you know what I mean? That's it, man. That's, I mean, that's it. We say, and so one of my favorite statements is if the community is unwell, we're all unwell. It's not, it's not avoidable. You can't avoid suffering in this day and age. And because we're empathetic beings, we truly are. We're hardwired. We're connected. The mycelium doesn't just apply to the mushrooms and to the trees, although it very much does. It applies to us. When somebody you love, you intuitively feel, oh my God, I got to call this person. You call them and they're like, how did you know? That's not random. We're connected. So I say, I use this for New Yorkers because we work out there too. I'm about to establish a brick and mortar in Brownsville, which is the most affected zip code in North America. And we're going to work really hard there to bring the same stuff. But I say to New Yorkers, I'm like, you go home so exhausted and so deep in escapism, right? It's like Netflix, booze, pills, weed, what, whatever I need to escape. And then I'm going to sleep kind of. And then I get up and I feel some alleviation because of rest and my connectivity to body and to self. I can I feel that. I get on the L train. I come up the stairs of the L. I see somebody unhoused on the train. I see a kid and his mom unhoused on the first block. On the second block, I see somebody asking for change. By the time you get to work, you've experienced three or four people in deep, deep suffering. You can compartmentalize that shit all day long, but it affects you. And it doesn't have to, is the part. Like I think we all have an awareness that while we're told to hold on to our resources and build as much as we can and amass and like keep the fences big and you know, keep up with the Joneses, it's it's not what we're here for. And so you're absolutely correct. We're all suffering. It's how we deal with that suffering and where we put that energy that'll define us. Well, it seems like what you just said, if you compartmentalize it, you need to treat it. Like, like if you pretend it's not there, you need to treat it. You need to Netflix it. You need to, and not to shame if someone watches a Netflix show, I could give a shit. But like, that's what makes us need booze, need alcohol, need weed, need drugs, need Tinder, need, again, not to shame Tinder, but using it for the wrong reasons. And again, not a judgment, blah, 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 blah. But the, that's the part that I think when, like when I went through a breakup uh, a year and a half ago, 
I realized how much I wasn't paying attention, mm. like how much grief uh, from the breakup was really also grief, just grief about humanity, grief about being a human, grief about things I'd never grieved in my own life experience. I realized that I didn't want to turn off that access to that grief. Yes. Like, although it was like in some way overwhelming, not in every way it was overwhelming, uh, there was something about the realness of the overwhelm. It continues to make me want to figure out how I can keep contributing to that transformation, but to poverty, not contribute to poverty, but to the eradication of, of poverty. And I, that work, I think when we turn towards it, part of acknowledging suffering is the overwhelm of how do I change it? Yeah. You know, like how do I as a regular, and I asked that previously, how do you as a human keep your heart open to that person who you see on the train? Or, you know, I think that maybe on a, you know, like, what can I do? Can I donate 20 bucks? All that kind of stuff. But like, how do you actually not shut yourself off? Because you're surrounded by it where you live through your work. You're purposefully, intentionally surrounded by it. Hmm. How do you do that? Yeah, I'm definitely going to answer that. And I just want to honor what you also said and, and say that that grief and sitting in those emotions is so incredibly critical as you discovered. We have to sit in our pain, right? It, and address it and see what comes up for us. And what the most the thing that people say to me the most, are you ready for this? I mean, you, you can probably guess it, but they're like, I don't deserve to feel sad because people have it worse off than me. And I'm like, I don't know who the fuck told you that, but whoever it is, is culpable. <laughs> and steer them in my direction so I can have a word, please. Because because somebody is suffering more than you doesn't mean you don't get to suffer that you don't feel. It's insane That's to me. That's such bullshit. But, but we you say know, it all the time. We're like, oh, but that guy doesn't have a house. And so therefore, my suffering equals zero. It's like, I'm sorry. First of all, it's not a competition in any way. Okay. And it's it doesn't. there's not a math equation involved in this either. I gave three homeless guys $20 a day. Therefore, I can address my own pain. No, that's not how the fuck this works <laughs> at all. For you to be the best tool in showing up for yourself, for your family, for other people, you have to address all your own pain as equal and real as anybody else's experience. It is absolutely a fact. And any I work in this shit day in and day out. And I don't look at people and go, hold on a second. How dare you feel guilt. How dare you feel, you know, of course you feel that stuff. And that's human. That would be normal. If you didn't feel it, I'd be shocked. I'd say there's something wrong with it. But we feel so guilty because we're not sure what to do or how to help or how to alleviate further that we then, of course, avoid, which goes back to what you said. But I think in the day-to-day -day interaction, you have to also understand we can only take so much inputs and give so much. All right, so there's only so much intake or output that we each of us have got in a day. And what fills up our energy, we'll, we'll quickly understand like, oh, okay, that actually made me feel great. And not in an egoic, like self-serving way, but energetically, I felt that resonance of helping this specific thing, right? So imagine women in the work, the way that you felt walking in the downtown east side, right? So a woman who is also wanting to do this, who does not have the um, undeserved privilege that we were born with of being big, white, apex predator, white men, it goes into this situation and is like, I don't know if I feel safe. That's also totally fucking fair. <laughs> like, get it. Like, so all of the different points that we come from of how we approach this work and how we can be helpful, that's, we have to determine our own abilities and our own safety in that too.
So I, I like to work forward facing in the streets, in, in barrios, in different places all around the world because I know what I'm walking into. I'm trained to be safe. I know how that you know is going to work for me. And I use this extreme example because in the in the micro example of you working with somebody who is visibly mentally ill on the street, you are not trained for that. You are not trained to be dealing with somebody having a paranoid schizophrenic outbreak in the middle of a street. So yeah. be, be careful, right? Be mindful. I, I will engage that work because that's what I'm trained to do. I know how to work with that. I also have the physical container that allows me to feel a little safer. Does that mean I'm safe? It doesn't. It just means that I'm safer. And so mm. those incidences also make up 0.00001% of poverty that you'll ever deal with in your life. If you see somebody suffering, like we said before, and you feel called, and you know what that means, right? You walk past them, yeah. you're like, fuck, I got to go back. And you keep walking, mm, it's going to stay with you. Go back. Go back and do what makes you feel safe and feels com- feel comfortable. And listening can be one of those greatest gifts that you can give people. Just being an ear for folks. So I hope all that makes sense. Yeah, it does. I, I like that idea of like, go to your edge, but still you're be discerning about your own edge. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like if it makes you feel more comfortable just to begin to sort of uh, give yourself exposure therapy, like volunteer with a group. Definitely. You know, and just start to, because I found like when I began to do that, all the preconceived notions I had started, to, they were all wrong. Yeah, man. Like, I couldn't believe just, like, hearing these people's stories. And I, I remember listening to um, the book uh, Change or Die. And in the book Change or Die, they talk about the Delancey Street Project. Yeah, I love those guys. And, oh, my God, like, what they've done has just been incredible, but totally, again, against what the mind would perceive. Like, they have a five-star restaurant yeah. and a five-star moving company totally. that's all with people who were previously incarcerated, I believe. Yeah, they work on transitioning folks out. So they built what would look like a bit of a compound. So they have transitional housing, wraparound services, they have an auto garage, they have pottery classes, they do industrial sewing and creation, they do dry cleaning, uh, auto mechanics, stuff I already mentioned, sorry, they do delivery, grocery delivery, and then their restaurant is banging. I spent a bunch of time there. So I, I did a year in the Bay um, as a Stanford fellow working on poverty and maybe a digital solution. So did a lot of research in the Mission Tenderloin, got to work with the fledgling homeless department in San Francisco, where it was like in a closet, in a desk, like out of a movie, right? Um, <laughs> and, but I spent a bunch of time with the Delancey folks and uh, also Lava May and all these other organizations that are addressing homelessness head on to see where their success, successes, tensions, and pain points were. So you and I walk into Delancey, it's been there since the 70s. We immediately yeah. go, why isn't there one of these every 25 blocks? Right? <laughs> yeah, I guess that is true. I was like, why isn't this everywhere? <laughs> of course, because it would just make sense for it to be everywhere. And also, people are really uncomfortable with quote-unquote criminals. They're just really uncomfortable yeah. with it. And so we work with um, the Anti-Recidivism, Co- Anti-Recidivism Coalition with Defy Ventures, which is an entrepreneur and residence program for people about to exit prison. We hire people. We show up in court for people and look at the judge and say, yes, this person is in our care and we'll have a job when they come out. And if we all did more of that, we don't have to be Delancey, which is you know a 60-year celebrity-endorsed six-block thing. We can all just employ a person who's struggling coming out with this label they've been given because the system wasn't built for them. There's, there's lots of ways that we can interact with it that make it make sense. And I think what you explained just before about destroying the false tropes or narratives, 
one of the things that we built, I would love to share with you. It's called Plenty of Plates. Yeah. So people used to come to me all the time and be like, Chef, I want to cook with you. They're like, cool. Do you know how to cook? I go, nine times out of 10 people are like, I have no idea. <laughs> like, yo, how is that helpful to me? Like, imagine if I showed up to your job and was like, hey, I'm just going to take over the keyboard for a second, code the rest of the site. And then you know how to code? I'm like, yeah, I'll figure it out. It's not a big deal, right? This piece of cake. We all know how to code. Uh, and so I used to deflect people and say, what is it that you do? Great. Take that skill and go do it. Still believe in that. But when people want to do something relentlessly, there's an energy there. You have to design for it. So I was like, okay, I've got the answer for them. They have to raise $5,000. There would be 12 to 15 of them. And then they can come in and learn to cook for 75 people. And when they're done learning to cook for 75 people with trained chefs and my team, we're going to reset up my diner that's closed in the evenings, candles, flowers, menus, music. The same people that cook will scrub up, throw aprons on and serve 75 people, predominantly indigenous, predominantly struggling with housing, a fine dining menu. Here's three courses. You choose. They can have anything to drink as long as it's not alcoholic. Let's roll. And I was like, nobody is ever going to sign up for this. right? <laughs> so they'll say they want to do it, and then I'll give them this option, and they'll never do it. Wrong. Dead wrong. Wow. So we were doing three-ish a week uh, before we closed because of the pandemic, and we're building it as like a cornerstone of what we do in New York. So you are not only part of learning being together with a group of like-minded individuals, a business, whatever it is, but you are directly in service. And at the end of it, we do the surprise. You've also served another 1,318 people with the amount of money that you've raised. So we're going to feed a bunch of people this week because of you too. And the one story that gets me every time is a tech company came to do it. They'll go nameless. They're local. They're wonderful. The CEO did not want to join. So he's... you know. Blackberry in the corner the whole time that they're cooking, ignoring what's happening. My managing director. That's awful, by the way, but that's a whole other. It gets, luckily, there's a good end to the story. My managing director, partner, one of my best friends, Ash McLeod, runs operations here. So I'm in New York having a terrible day. I hit him. I'm like, give me a good story. He starts telling me this story. He said, so the guy comes out, we're in service. We need him. It's not like you can't still just stand there. We need you to serve hot foods up. Let's go. So he's like, I get him serving. At the end, he looks like he's seen a ghost. He's deeply affected. And so Ash goes to him and says, hey, are you okay? And he's like, I know this work can be very confronting and sort of gives him the, like, the talk him down from the tree. And he's like, it's not that. He's like, okay, well, what happened? And he said, I served one of my employees. He said, pardon? Whoa. He's like, yeah, one of my employees apparently doesn't get paid enough. And so Wow. The CEO goes back, reevaluates everybody's living wage, what he's doing, right? And this is, of course, an entry-level position. But that person living in this city didn't have enough money, found them way through services to get invited to this dinner, and he served them. That doesn't happen by accident. No. Right? And that would be a wake-up call and a half. So these things matter. Wow. It matters, and exposure to it matters. Uh, and so then people who are constituents come face to face with their new friends, they help them individually, but they also look at what's going on in the next elections and the next races. And I like to call it an advocate factory. It's a great idea for them, for anyone who's wanting to, in any area of any part of the world, to embed themselves in which they, this is a no brainer. We shouldn't even have to say this, but to embed themselves within every part of the community, every part of the culture, every part of where it doesn't work 
Because we like, of course, want to just look at what works well, but not look at the things that cause us that discomfort. And man, so much honor to you for all the work that you do in the world. And not just that, the incredible gift you have of articulating and, and sharing with us what it is that you do, but putting it into context and to make it, uh, I guess, consumable or relatable so that like, I can hear what you're saying and go, oh yeah, I guess I could just go start doing that thing. And that's the way, or I could just say, I know the feeling of you walk by a homeless person and you're like, I should stop or give them something or, and you're like, nah, because I remember previously when I would have that feeling, the socialization of like, be safe, take care of yourself. They might be dangerous. It makes us keep walking. And and again, putting it into context to each person's level of risk, I get that. But amazing how much, uh, just how much we've been socialized has caused us to dehumanize in so many facets of life. Yeah, very much so. And I feel like, you know, in that statement of yours, you bring it full circle to our introduction, which was, I was told that I should feel unsafe in this neighborhood. And my friend was like, oh, you're probably safer here than anywhere. And statistically, true. You know, the thing about it is the community, like the downtown east side, Mission Tenderloin, Skid Row. Yes, there are predators. Yes, there are people doing terrible things to the people who reside in those areas generally. But for the most part, the people that I've engaged with, and this is my personal experience and the experience of thousands of employees I've had, we feel safe. This is our community. These are people that we are excited to see and say hello to on the street in a notoriously cold city, right? It is so friendly in the downtown east side. People are so nice and they're excited to see you and you build relationship and then you start to figure out how you can show up in service and vice versa. In my darkest moments over the last 10 years, the place I turned to wasn't to therapy until recently. It was to the people who I trust in my community who are generally people who've been affected and some of my best friends. Mm. So where we look, it's not a one-way street. It's not. Right. My one of my dearest, dearest friends was my first employee, quote unquote, that had a barrier. And he's we've been together ever since. Like that's that's my guy. And he spent 70% of his life incarcerated, has very serious issues, has become reconnected with his family via help from me. And I became reconnected with me because of him. I understood what I had to do. And so I don't think we just look at this as a, you know, savior thing or what can it be? But it's like, how can I be part of uh, an integral part of a community that could use some help from the skills that I have and vice versa? Feels like we're all getting called back to that, to like getting down to the roots, growing our own food. What can we do with that? Feeding each other, you know, in so many ways, not just from a nourishment that's a food-based thing, but from just love and connection. And Mark, thank you so much for sharing and and where do people find more of you if they want to reach out if they want i'm sure you get zillions of thousands of emails uh asking like hey i'd like to have you design this in my neighborhood or something like that but how can they get more? Uh, super easy to find on socials the uh, ig is where i live most and it's just my name at mark.brand uh and then my website is my name uh, markbrandinc.com and you can reach out please do it's myself and we have a team and if there's something that you want help with or you want to engage, do reach out, please. And if it's just simply to even share a story, you know, I think in our conversation, I really enjoyed you sharing your experience with me because it gives me hope. It gives me a lot of hope and it really fuels the tanks that people don't only just understand this, they're actively working on it. And it, it helps us feel really seen 
and um, yeah, part of a larger community that's in growth. So now again, I want to just thank you for bringing me and, and sharing the space and time with me. Uh, I feel very, very fulfilled. Mm, right back at you, brother. That's a sign of a conversation well yes, had. Yes, sir. Appreciate you. you.